This is what Holy Scripture says. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take out your Bibles and turn again to Luke chapter 7, which Dwight read for us just a short time ago. Luke chapter 7. I once read a a poem, and the poet there was imagining Adam's first evening in the Garden of Eden. He described the scene in his poem as Adam began to notice that the sun was sinking down toward the horizon, that the shadows were growing long, that the light was getting dim. The first day was becoming the first night. Adam didn't know what to expect. He had only ever known daylight. And so this poet imagined that as the day faded into night, Adam might have assumed that darkness would hide all the wonders of creation, that in the night he would not be able to see any beauty at all. But Adam should not have been concerned. Here's what the poet says. Yet neath a curtain of translucent dew bathed in the rays of the great setting flame The planets with the stars of heaven came, and lo, creation widened on man's view. In other words, the sun needed to set and the light needed to fade before Adam could see the glories of the heavens opened up before him. And in much the same way, anyone who wants to know spiritual light must first know spiritual darkness. 
We need to know the pain of sorrow before we can know God's hand of comfort. We need to know the dark shadow of sin before we can experience the bright light of God's blessing. This morning we'll be looking at the second of the eight Beatitudes that Jesus spoke at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first sermon that was recorded for us. He began with eight Beatitudes, eight blessed, each beginning with the word blessed. And you remember what we've said about this, these Beatitudes, that they describe the values of the upside-down kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that Jesus has established. The first of them, the first of the Beatitudes is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We saw last week that God's favor is extended to those who know themselves to be spiritually bankrupt, people who come to God with empty hands, and plead God's mercy. And the second beatitude we'll be looking at this morning is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God's blessings are extended to those who come with empty hands and also broken hearts. So this morning we'll look at that beatitude, and we'll do so through three words. You can see this little outline in your song sheet there, brokenhearted, blessed, and comforted. First, brokenhearted. Luke tells this interesting story from the life of Jesus in chapter 7 of his gospel. We can't look at it in great detail today, but I do want to use one of its characters as a really helpful illustration of this beatitude. I'll give you the context here. Jesus has been invited to dinner at the home of a man named Simon. He's a very good man, a very religious man, a very upright man. He's one of those Pharisees we talked about last week in that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus has accepted the invitation, and he's now reclining at the table for his meal. Look in verse 37. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So you can see this, everybody's at the table, lying at the table, their heads toward the table, their feet kind of lying out like spokes in a wheel. Everybody's lying there, eating together, and suddenly this woman enters, and she comes and she falls down at Jesus' feet, weeping, weeping so hard that tears are just pouring out of her eyes and soaking his feet. Then she lets down her hair, and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. She even begins to kiss his feet. And as if that's not enough, she breaks out this flask of expensive ointment and begins to anoint his feet with it. She is making a total spectacle of herself. We wonder, who is this woman? It's interesting, she's not given a name. She's given just a description. She's a woman of the city who is a sinner. I guess she's the kind of woman whose reputation precedes her, the kind of woman everyone in the town knows, everyone in the city knows, She's that sinful one. And then we wonder, why is she crying so hard? What has so upset her? We need to go back to our story to find out. In the middle of all this disturbance, you can imagine Simon, this good religious man, is put on this dinner and suddenly this woman breaks in and disturbs everything. In the middle of all this disturbance, when it's obvious Simon is looking judgmentally toward that woman, Jesus tells him a little parable. 
And this little parable has three characters. One of the characters represents Jesus. One of the characters represents the woman. And one of the characters represents Simon. Look at verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. That's about maybe $200,000. The other owed 50. It's about $20,000. Two of these characters are in debt to the third And one of them has gotten into much deeper debt. Of course, this is a parable. It's a story that's meant to teach a moral or to teach a lesson. So it's not actually about the financial realm. It's about the spiritual realm. This woman is the one who owes the greater debt. But it's not a debt of money. It's a debt of sin. There had been a time in her life, we learn, when she had found great joy in committing sin. She gave herself over to her sin. She she embraced it. She pursued it. She reveled in it. But somehow, and at some point, she'd become aware that through her sin, she had accumulated a great debt before God. So like David, she had come to say, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Like Isaiah, she had caught a glimpse of God in his holiness and said, woe is me. Like Paul, she had understood her inner depravity and said, wretched woman that I am. This woman knows she's accumulated a great debt of sin before God and that she will not be able to pay it. And so she knows she's facing the consequences, the eternal consequences of her sin, of her rebellion. And so she mourns, she weeps. The first beatitude we looked at last week, it promises a great blessing for those who are poor in spirit. It is no coincidence that the second beatitude is for those who mourn. Spiritual bankruptcy always leads to spiritual sorrow. Empty hands always leave us with a broken heart. This woman knows her spiritual bankruptcy and it grieves her. It causes her to weep. But remember, Adam had to know the darkness of night before he could see the beauty of the stars. And just like that, this woman has to know spiritual sorrow before she can know spiritual joy. There are still blessings in store for her. So if our first heading is brokenhearted, our second is blessed. This woman's spiritual bankruptcy is not the only reason that she's weeping. Look again to that little parable, verse 41. Certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. We learned something interesting here. The two characters in the parable, the ones who borrowed so much money and then squandered that money and can never pay it back, they've had their debt canceled. Now again, this is a parable, so it's got a spiritual lesson behind the story. This woman has accumulated a very great debt of sin and she knows that her sin has been forgiven. She has lived an unholy life before God and she deserves to be punished for that sin. But all of that has been set aside. All of that has been forgiven. All that has been settled, not because of any good thing that she's ever done, but only because of grace. It's a gift from the one to whom she owed the debt. She's received this great 
great forgiveness, and she is overwhelmed. And so those tears of sorrow are mingled with tears of joy, tears of relief, tears of amazement, all because of this very great blessing that she's received. This woman wonderfully illustrates what Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. She weeps with sorrow over her brokenness, and she weeps with joy over her forgiveness. And I wonder, do you know those tears? Have you ever wept tears that are sad and happy at the same time? The kind of tears that lament poverty, but also rejoice in riches, or the tears that confess sin and marvel at grace. It's the kind of tears we weep at the Lord's Supper when we consider our sin, and at the same time, we consider Christ's sacrifice. They're the kind of tears we shed when we hear the gospel and we think about the depths of our sin and the heights of God's grace. They're the kind of tears we shed sometimes when we worship and in our songs we profess our sinfulness as we've done, but we also profess Christ's forgiveness. This kind of tear, these tears, they come from the soul as much as they come from the eyes. These are holy tears that God loves and God treasures. But what if we don't weep this way or feel this way? If we've been forgiven a debt as big as this woman's, shouldn't we act like this woman? Shouldn't she be demonstrating how we're to live? In that vein, Jesus has a question he needs to ask Simon. We see it in verse 42. Now, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the bigger debt. He said to him, you have judged rightly. This was no trick question Jesus was answering here. It has an obvious answer. It's obvious that, it's obvious which one of these two would have felt deeper gratitude. If I borrow your pen and I forget to give it back, you've done no great thing if you say, don't worry about it, it's fine. If I borrow your house and I burn your house to the ground, it's a very big deal if you say, don't sweat it, I've got it covered. We're moved by extravagant displays of grace, not by minuscule ones. Could it be, could it be that behind our dry eyes is an apathetic heart? A heart that's like Simon's and that it believes, I haven't been forgiven very much, or maybe I have no need of forgiveness at all. We need to remember the Beatitudes don't just describe the entrance requirements for citizens of the kingdom of heaven. They they describe the ongoing values. Mourning is not something we do just as we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Mourning is something we do as we live within this kingdom of heaven. So how can we mourn our sins like this woman? We might think the best thing to do would be to let our minds or memories drift back to to the worst things we've ever done, to to ponder our worst acts of depravity, you know, to feel, feel regret wash over us, to feel shame. But can good really come out of fixating on what's evil? And why would we go to all the effort of remembering our sins when God says that he's forgotten them? So what if? What if instead of fixating on our sins, we instead consider the penalty for sin? We consider the payment 
for sin. We consider all of God's efforts to keep us from sin, and we consider the joy we've known when we've overcome sin or fled sin. So let's consider death, cross, grace, and joy. Let's, let's just mourn. Let's learn how to mourn our sin together. Let's learn how to be brokenhearted before our God. If we wish to truly mourn for our sin, there's no better place to begin than with the penalty for our sin. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them all they needed to live perfectly and sinlessly in this world. He held back just one thing, the fruit of a single tree. And this was the test of their submission. It posed the question, will we submit to our God or will we rebel against our God? And just as an act of great heroism will bring about a rich reward, an act of great villainy will bring about a terrible punishment. So God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The penalty for sin is death. Now, we don't like death. We fear it. We flee from it. We, we won't even talk about it. We mask its realities under all these different euphemisms we use. But if we want to know the true horror of our sin, we need to consider death. Death is the just consequence of our rebellion. Think about it. If the wages of sin were a, a brief time out in the corner, we could say sin's not really all that serious. But if the wages of sin is death, we must conclude that sin is extremely serious. It's the greatest possible penalty because it's the greatest possible crime. What is death? Death is the unnatural separation of soul from body. Bodies and souls were meant to be permanently united, but in death, the body returns to the dust and the soul returns to God who gave it. And while physical death is real and, and while it's true and while it's horrifying, it's also a picture of something even worse, something much more serious, something the Bible calls the second death. Death as we know it today is a temporary state. At some point, Christ will return and bodies and souls will be reunited. For those who have rejected Jesus Christ, they'll be delivered into hell to suffer the eternal consequences of their, their sin, their rebellion. For these, the first death is just the gateway to the second death, which is far, far worse. Do you want to mourn your sin? Then consider the wages of sin is death, the temporary death of body and the forever judgment of body and soul. Once we consider the penalty for sin, we can consider the payment for sin. And to do that, we need to look at the cross. We need to look at Jesus Christ suspended between earth and heaven, between God and man. We sang a song earlier that said, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. We need to behold that man. We need to look at him. We, we must not avert our gaze until we see our sin upon his shoulders. See, Christians often make a mistake when it comes to the cross in that they make the cross all about brutality, all about physical pain. And make no mistake, crucifixion was an absolutely grueling, horrible ordeal. But all of that physical suffering would have done us no good unless there had also been a much deeper spiritual suffering. Jesus' suffering wasn't just physical. It was spiritual. 
because when he was hanging there, he was facing the wrath of God. Jesus Christ felt the full fury of God's wrath against sinfulness. He faced all the judgment of hell. He bore the fury of God's wrath until that wrath was expiated. It was complete. It was empty. And only then did he breathe his last. Only then did he die. If you want to mourn your sin, then you need to look to the cross. But be careful. Don't look first to the nails in his hands or the thorns pressed into his brow. Look to your sin upon his shoulders. And then look to God's wrath being poured out upon that perfect man. He's getting what you deserve. He's suffering for your sin. Having considered death and having considered the cross, let's consider grace. I don't mean saving grace right now, but God's ongoing grace he gives us to protect us from ourselves. Kids, you've probably been to the zoo before. If you go to the zoo, you'll see there's an alligator enclosure. And you'll see that it's surrounded by, by signs and warnings and walls and fences. Why? Because alligators are really dangerous. If that enclosure was full of bunny rabbits and guinea pigs and cotton balls, they wouldn't need to warn everybody away from it. But it's full of hungry, dangerous alligators. God shows us how dangerous our sin is by warning us not to commit it. There's so many different ways that God warns us against committing sin. So many opportunities he gives us to do what is right instead of what's wrong. Let's consider just a few. God reveals himself in the created world so that the night skies reveal God who's infinite, the mountains, a God who's powerful, the floods, a God who judges. Then God writes his law on our hearts so that each of us has some inner understanding of what's good and what's evil. He gives us his law, first in the Ten Commandments, then in the rest of the Bible, law that guides us away from sin and into righteousness. He gives us psalms that teach us how to lament our sin. He gives us prophecies that warn of the consequences of our sin. He gives us gospels that describe the life of Jesus. He gives us epistles that explain how to live for God's glory. He gives us the revelation to show the future that awaits those who remain faithful to Christ. He's still not done. He gives pastors to preach sermons, to reprove and rebuke and exhort us. He gives us brothers and sisters who can see when we sin and who can call us back from our sin. He, he arranges his providence to interrupt our plans when we want to sin. Best of all, he gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit to take up residence within each one of us to guide us and to teach us. His, his Spirit offers us help in every temptation so we never, ever need to sin. There's always, always a way of escape. There are so many different ways that God keeps us from our sin, that he puts walls around us so we won't sin. So we don't have to, at least. If sin led to pleasure... God would invite us to indulge. He'd say, have all you want. If sin led to just minor consequences, a time out in the corner, then maybe God would recommend that we don't sin. But sin leads to death. And so God goes to these great, great lengths to guide us away from what is evil, to guide us toward what is good. Do you want to mourn your sin? 
then consider all God does to keep you from it, all he has done to keep you from it, and think how often you've chosen to sin anyway, how often you've chosen not to heed his grace, how often you've chosen to ignore it and mourn. And when we consider death and the cross and grace, we should also consider joy, the joy that has been ours when we've obeyed God and the joy we know we've forfeited when we've disobeyed God. If we know the the vileness of sin by all the ways that God keeps us from it, we know the goodness of obedience by all the joy that, that rises up from within. Before we come to Christ, we truly do believe that, that obedience is the path to repression and that rebellion is the path to joy. But we come to learn by God's grace, we come to learn that the God who created us, he knows how we can best live. True joy is found within the boundaries of his will, not outside of it. We come to learn there is way more joy to be found in purity than in playing the field. More joy in earning a reward than stealing one. More joy in self-control than in self-indulgence. You make known to me the path of life, says the psalmist. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Hasn't that been your experience, Christian? Time and time again, there is pleasure Pleasure in knowing God, pleasure in obeying God. There's great joy to be had. Consider the joy you've known when you have obeyed God. Consider the joy that flooded your heart when you finally turned away from a sin, when you found freedom from a temptation that had just been clinging to you. Consider how often you've brought misery. How often you've missed out on joy when you've done what is wrong, when you've chosen sin over holiness. Mourn. Mourn for all the sorrow you've brought to your life. Mourn for all the joy you've forfeited. Blessed are those who are broken, brokenhearted over their sin. And I wonder, have you asked God, have you ever asked God to break your heart Could anything be more countercultural, more against the grain of the kingdom of this world than to pray, God, please break my heart. Make me weep. Make me grieve. Make me mourn. But could anything be more consistent with the ethos of the kingdom of heaven, the king who says, blessed are those who mourn, who mourn their sin. If you've not yet come to Christ, if he's an enemy, or a stranger to you rather than a friend, I would say, why don't you begin right here? Why don't you ask God to break your heart over what breaks his? The Bible says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God honors confession and contrition, admitting sin, being sorrowful for sin, turning away from sin. Don't be afraid to have your heart broken. If you want to see the beauty of the night skies, you'll first have to watch the light fade into the dark of night. But when it does, there's so much beauty to experience, so much beauty to see. So why don't you ask God to give you that broken and contrite heart? What would be the harm in praying to God and say, would you break my heart over what breaks yours? God won't turn you away. He won't despise your request. In fact, he'll turn to you. 
and he'll give you sweet comfort, which is our third heading, comforted. The woman in our story, she's been brokenhearted and blessed. She's wept tears of sorrow over her sin and tears of joy over her forgiveness. And now Jesus means to comfort her. Look to verse 50. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The great comfort that Jesus offers this sinful woman is the comfort of peace. This deep soul peace that will go with her even as she walks away from his presence, even as she lives out her life without being right there beside him. Peace. And you see what it was that saved this woman? It was not her tears. It was not her foot washing. It was not the kissing, the the ointment. It wasn't anything she did. It was her faith. That woman had come with empty hands and a broken heart and faith with trust in Jesus, trust that he was the savior of the world, trust that he could and had forgiven her. All those actions she took, they they were just proof of her salvation. They weren't the cause of it. That same peace can be ours. We have forfeited joy. We've despised grace. We've committed sins. we, We deserve death. We will die. We confess all of that. But God ministers his comfort to us through the gospel and assures us we can have peace with God. We can have peace with God as long as we come like that woman did, with empty hands and a broken heart and faith. And then her sorrow and her joy will be ours. Her worship will be ours. The Apostle Paul says, though we are sorrowful, we are always rejoicing. See, Christians should be the most brokenhearted and the most joyful of all people, the most sorrowful and the most worshipful. Two streams can flow through a valley and never quite touch, never become one. And we live out our lives grieving and joyful, mourning our sin and celebrating our salvation. But God's kingdom has a present and a future dimension, and so too do his blessings. So even as we receive God's true and precious comfort today, we're looking forward to a greater, more precious comfort still to come. The comfort that will come when sin and all of its consequences have finally been removed altogether. Sin's power was broken when Jesus died. Sin's presence will be broken when he returns. I want you to listen to this vision of the comfort that's to come to all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. This comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Have you ever considered that day? Do you ever find yourself just meditating upon it? Do you ever fix your heart upon that day? Yes, God will wipe away all the tears you weep for your pains and your losses and your disappointments and your bereavements. That's a wonderful thing. We all long for that. But God can do that only after he's wiped away all the tears that come from your most fundamental problem, which is sin. 
The raging river of sorrow may have many rivers, many tributaries that feed into it, but ultimately it comes from one source, and that source is sin. So do you ever picture God wiping away those tears? They must be first. He'll wipe away all your tears of remorse for all the sins you've ever committed. He'll wipe away all your tears of shame for your acts of defiance. He'll wipe away all your tears of mourning for the ways you've hurt and harmed other people. He'll wipe away all your tears of regret that you are responsible for the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. He'll wipe away all the tears you shed when you realize just how badly broken you really are. Do you think about that day, that beautiful day when every tear will be dried by God's tender, gentle hand? The ones who mourn today will be comforted tomorrow. It was only when the sun set, only when the light faded, that Adam could see the beauty of the night skies, the beauty of the stars and planets. And it's only when we admit our sin that we can receive God's forgiveness. It's only when we weep that we can be consoled. So blessed, my friends. Blessed are the brokenhearted, for they shall be made whole. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Amen. Let me pray. Father, on behalf of the people gathered here today, I ask that you would break our hearts. Pray that you would break our hearts over what breaks yours. Pray that you would give us faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, put all our confidence, all our hope and trust in him. Pray that you'd help us to grieve our sin even as we rejoice in your grace. Pray that we would long for that day, long for that day with all our hearts when sin will be no more and every last tear shall be dried. We pray, Lord, that you would hasten that day. In Christ's name, amen.